This is the stillness of the eternal beginning, the world as, as it, it has, has always been. been. Welcome to the Indiana Jones Universe, the podcast that explores the incredible adventures of the world's greatest globetrotting archaeologist, Indiana Jones. Each episode is a casual and somewhat humorous opinionated conversation with a slightly sophisticated analytical study of the expanded universe content from the Indiana Jones franchise. You can expect to find discussions about the adventures of young Indiana Jones, the further adventures of Indiana Jones comic books, the staff of Kings and Emperor's Tomb video games, the Indiana Jones novels, the original soundtracks, and so much more. Hello, everybody, and welcome back uh, to another episode of the Indiana Jones Universe podcast. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. And today uh, we are continuing our exclusive interview series to celebrate the 30th anniversary of the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles, uh, which includes behind the scenes conversations with some of the talented filmmakers, directors and writers uh, who contributed to this phenomenal television series. Uh, for part three, our very special guest today as one of many talented writers who worked on Young Indy and brought George Lucas's ideas to the screen. Uh, he was responsible for writing three terrific episodes, uh, British East Africa 1909, Princeton 1916, and Vienna 1908, uh, and also contributed to three of the TV movies, uh, Travels with Father, Attack of the Hawkman, and Hollywood Follies. So, uh, with that said, it is my pleasure to introduce our very special guest today, Mr. Matthew Jacobs. Good morning. Hi, Henry. Or Henri, I should say. And, and, and Elijah. Nice to meet you. The thing you've got on your thing, the, the shot of young, young Indy um, coming down into the into the tomb. Oh, of course. Um, that was done, shot on a little stage. That was where I went to meet, um, when I went to meet um, Billy August. And I saw that being shot that 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 moment. It's quintessential young indie. It is. I think that vision was totally in George's head. He knew exactly how to shoot it. All he had to build was the doorway. <laughs> <laughs> it's really cool. It's just like got that backlight and everything. Yeah, that's incredible. All right, so let's get started. Um, to begin, tell us a little bit about yourself. How did your film career begin, and how did that ultimately lead to your role on the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles? My father was an actor, and uh, so I was brought up in the business as an actor. I was in the National Youth Theatre. I then went, I then went and worked with um, um, Ridley Scott at RSA as a runner in the editing room. I went from there to to university and studied drama, and was taught about directing and 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 more acting. And then, and then I went to film school, and at that. Um, time in the 70s um, films there were very few film schools but a big supporter of film cool schools was George Lucas and so already I was interested in him and it was around the time I was graduating from film school in 
1980 that the original Indiana Jones was out and about and, and I was working for Paramount and every you know I, I he was just a hero of mine completely wow and when I graduated from film school I graduated as a writer uh, and as a director so um, so writing sort of come to me while I was at film school and then it wasn't that it, then, then for about ten years, I was in the industry making TV shows, making mystery shows, doing doing TV films, and I was in the middle of doing my first feature film as a director, a film called Hallelujah Anyhow, um, which ended up playing Sundance in '92, and played you know in London in '90. I'd been over to the States a couple of times um, with a few. Um, with a few projects like Paper House and things like that. And I was just starting to have an American agent at ICM. And I was in the middle of shooting, and I get a call from my agent, Sue Rogers, saying, oh, they've asked to meet you for um, this, this young indie, this educational series that, that uh, George Lucas is doing. And so I was pretty bowled over. They want writer direct they want writer directors because George's original intent was for the writers to direct the shows, his very first wow. intent. And it was um and that was why half of us were really directors as well. So Hales was um a sort of dramaturge at the Royal Court Theatre and was also a very good director. Obviously, um, Frank Darabont had just started directing. Hensley wanted to direct. I I was already directing. But we were also... And he kind of wanted half the team to be British because a lot of it was sort of set in Europe and, and around the place, and the other half to be Americans. Anyway, I went back to... I got this call at lunchtime, and I went back onto the set for this film, Hallelujah Anyhow, going... I'm going to be making an Indiana Jones thing. <laughs> this is really strange. And my my DP was was a, a wonderful guy, um, and he was oh well, we better shoot an action sequence then. Yes, yes, let's do that. Come on. Um, so and then obviously I had to go for an interview. It wasn't like an offer. I had to go and meet George, and Rick obviously um, knew my work because Rick had been involved with um, British television. So I went to meet him at the St. James Club, and I can't tell you what it was like sharing a tiny, tiny elevator with George Lucas and Rick. And I was, <laughs> I was sort of squished in there. I was about as nervous as a man could be. And, and then when we started talking, I talked about how I really, really loved um, American graffiti and how... I felt that American graffiti when when I was at when I was at drama school we'd been inspired by American graffiti to do a sort of mods and rockers version of Midsummer Night's Dream um and and I thought how I thought American graffiti was a little like Midsummer Night's Dream and he was fascinated by that and so we kind of hit it off and then so it wasn't very long after that that I heard back that yeah Matthew they want you to come over and and uh, um, and uh, we went over and started work on the on the show and very quickly they decided they had to 
higher star directors and and so it wasn't it was it seemed like that was almost like an enticement which which very quickly abc were going now nah, we need you know we can if we can get nick rogue if we can get you know the leading directors for each country um to do these shows we'll do that and, and and i was perfectly happy with that because i mean it was amazing it was such an amazing experience making this show because you got to work with um not only did you get to work with george but you got to work with brilliant directors and george was very inclusive of you know most shows writers can be marginalized especially in the early 90s and late 80s um but but um George would, you know, fly us over, all over the place to sort of sit down with the director um, for the final draft. So we were included all all the way, basically. Well, it's interesting that you should mention uh, Ridley Scott because um, Simon Winster actually mentioned him as well. I think he worked with him for a little while. But sounds like to me like your initial conversations with George Lucas and Rick McCallum went really well. But how well did your own creative vision align with their ideas? Well, when you're hired to work for somebody like George Lucas, you, you, your your creative vision becomes, you know, it's it's part of your job to align your creative vision to the producer's vision. Right. So um, you don't get into a fight, and and and, and uh, to be quite honest, you wouldn't want to get into. I I think I had one disagreement with with George, and his his way of dealing with the disagreement was to just go. Oh, that's interesting. And, and uh, you wouldn't hear anything, and then you would be fired. <laughs> but uh, I wasn't fired. But it was, it was, it, you know, it would be. Uh, um, he he doesn't. He's not a sort of combative person. I don't think, uh, in my experience, you know, he's he doesn't need to be. I mean, when somebody's that um, strong of a producer and and filmmaker. Um, the, you know they 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 have a, a an innate confidence so so it's a joy to share somebody's vision there and this really was his vision his his vision for young indy as i understood it was history was being badly taught in america um in high schools people didn't really have a deep understanding of of the early 20th century and the early 20th century you know this the time span that's covered in in young indiana jones chronicles is such a foundation for everything that we're still experiencing today and right from the beginning he was saying well the aim is to do you know a show that a network show that'll have a big audience and, and indie is this great way of introducing people to these different subjects and then i'm going to do you know another 90 or so documentaries to accompany them and he right from the beginning his real objective was the dvd release so as an educational tool um and uh, so i think that was always his his creative vision and i signed on to that wholeheartedly um and and i just love history and he was very aware of the fact that every one of the writers on board you know had their pa had their passionate things that they were passionate about and so it would always be a case of we'd we'd break the stories together over a, 
a couple of weeks um, at Skywalker Ranch um, and uh, living in the, you know, writer's block, as it were. And he built these great places for us to stay in. And we'd meet every day and we would spend two days on each story for the season. Um, nobody knew who was going to write what. Then at the end of that, um, at the end of going through the season, of maybe 15 shows or something, whatever it was, um, you would they'd say, okay, choose one that you definitely want to write and choose, choose another one that you think you'd be great at. Um, or you think that you, you think... So you basically would say, well, I want, I, I said, I wanted to write Vienna um, and I, and I was, you know, and I think I was keen on one of the other ones and they ended up giving me Vienna and, and, and uh, um, the African one, I think on the first, I think on the first round of writing. So yes, the vision aligned basically. Right, and talk a little bit more about that entire screenwriting process because it was very different from, say, a traditional television series and, uh, you know, other movies as well. You know, what was your, you know, collaboration like with the other writers, George Lucas, uh, the research team? How did that entire process go? So you would um, be flown over. Um, you didn't really know what the stories were going to be. There was no... You'd arrive at the ranch... Um, he, he, he basically then you'd be given this giant book that <laughs> Debbie Fine had, had put together because Debbie Fine was the head of research um, at Lucasfilm and uh, she and she'd done wonderful research work throughout her career and she was you know it's fantastic stuff and so she'd put together this giant sort of bible that would have us would have a digest of each subject, you know, if it was Picasso, if it was, um, you know, Kazantzakis, or um, if it was, you know, you, you suddenly had this giant book to read, and you, you, but obviously you'd read it as per as you went into each episode, and basically George had a very rough idea um, of what he wanted to get out of each story. And he kind of pitched that to us. This is how, I mean, this is how I remember it. Maybe one of the other writers might remember it differently. But but um, he kind of pitched that to us, and then he'd get out a piece of paper, and he'd basically write from numbers one through to twenty. Um, <laughs> he said, "Well, this is how I want it to begin," and so he, we'd know that we'd know that. Uh, that uh, it, on the initial show, we were we were doing one-hour TV shows, and they were all one-hour TV shows. It was a later thing to shove them together into features. Um, so, so for example, the Hollywood Follies. There was my show was a completely separate hour about about indie and um, you know and John Ford, Jack Ford. Um, and, um, you know, and John Hales, Jonathan Hales had written a completely separate show about Indy and Von Stroheim. 
Dang. Um, and so they were different shows. Um, and then later on, we came back when we realized we were going to have to combine some of them into features. We came back and did a separate pass where we combined them. Um, we worked out things like Attack of the Hawkman was the most complex. And then when they tried to do it, that's why you end up with Ben Burt um, taking writing credit as well. But in terms of process... Basically, he'd sit down and he'd say, okay, this is this is an hour, you know, and I'm going to 20 beats and we know that there are like three commercial breaks or whatever. And we'd start in roughly mapping out what was going to happen. Normally, we always knew that the first, the first five, the first quarter, if you like, of the story was going to be setting up whatever it was that was drawing indie, be him the older young indie or the younger young indie. In, into this into the situation and the story um, and um, and and this and that would would go right up to the sort of midpoint where whatever crisis or whatever twist was that took you into the third act um, not the third act the third quarter of it um, would would happen the third quarter would always be the bit where we'd go deep into whatever the subject was so for example in vienna where he where he's with freud jung and adler the whole of that third quarter is one scene is the scene you know where indy is basically trying to find out the meaning of love and and gets four definitions gets you know for the freudian one which is it's all about sex um you know and gets young it's all about uh, archetypes gets adler it's all about you know the structures within society and gets his dad where it's a sort of medieval vision of romance um and and it arms him for what would be the the fourth act, which is always Indiana Jones going off on an adventure. In that case, breaking into the palace, um, finding Sophie, and being able to talk to her, you know, and and uh, getting that locket, which we'd already decided, we already knew before we did that, that the locket would be the thing that saves his life. Um, wow! Later on. Wow! Yeah, so we already knew these things. The whole thing, you know, the thing about George Lucas is he is an incredible architect. Um, he can he can envision um, whole worlds, and he embraces that um, universal vision in a very very exciting way. And I learned a lot from that. And 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 sometimes it would. <laughs> yeah, I would get into a terrible mess because of it. Because I'd come away and then I'd be commissioned to write, you know, something for DreamWorks or something, and then and it would be, and I and they'd say, oh well, just write the short treatment, you know, we just want treatment, and I'd go away and I and in sort of Lucas-like fashion, I'd write it almost like a twenty-page piece that was about an entire universe that was enough for 15 movies um, uh, and that people would then say what are you doing um, <laughs> and I said well this is what I was taught to do and this is you've got to create a universe and he had that in his mind I think when he was starting Young Indy and a lot of it I think was came comes from his his ex sheer excitement in 
imagining what could happen, not only in the future, but in the past. So it's almost like if you can think of it, if you can imagine that maybe, you know, the Nazis wanted to get a telephone line to God, um, then then you said, let's go and look at the research. Oh, yes, they did try to find the Ark of the Covenant. You know, they did try to do that. And so it wasn't like blanket research. It was like, from what he'd read in history, he would be inspired by something. So he looks at the first, he says, well, look at all this stuff that happened. Oh, look, 1908, you have the first psychoanalytical conference and they're really interested. Ah, well, if we have Indy staying with the um, you know, American ambassador, there's no reason why he can't meet them. And then what should happen? Oh, he should fall in love. Who would be the most dangerous person for him to fall? Princess Sophie. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and, and the story. So he, he really had that story in his mind. I think in many ways that was one of his favorite episodes. Oh, wow. Um, and it wasn't because it wasn't because of my work or anybody's in particular's work. Um, I mean, I think he was very happy with the work, but he always wanted to do to do it rather like a, um, you know, a Bergman film. So we had Max von Sydow playing. Uh, I think we had we had Billy August directing, who basically is the inheritor of in some ways of in Ingmar Bergman and and the you know the cast on that film was to die for basically it was just it was just this beautiful cast and I went over to London and met with Billy August at the final stages and we really refined the script quite carefully but at the end of the day it's a you know it's a TV a TV family show you know and they're difficult to do family shows on TV are very difficult to do and 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 in television it's much more of a writer's medium. Um, so writer, so every time there was a cut, every time, sometimes we'd watch dailies because he, he we'd be at the ranch and and he had viewing theatres there and and uh, and also you know the, the whole process was such fun. I have such fond memories of it. I really do. Um, and he would involve us. Um, in in the process, I do remember like there's there's one um, episode which I didn't write, but I certainly was involved in the story. All the writers were involved in every story, basically, because so so we'd be in a room and there would be six writers, seven writers, and we would we be all spitballing ideas, including George, back back and forth, arguing, eating too much, um, having you know, really having a laugh and and telling these working out how to tell these stories coming out with ideas that we just couldn't do everything would be taped in fact it was my job most of the time to organize the cassettes wow um and so at the end you'd end up with like six or seven full cassettes of of trying to put together the story and over two days and then on the on the on the final day George would go through his notes and he would just basically say the story that we'd got. And that would be the story. And you didn't know who was going to write it um, uh, until you got to the end of the three weeks or the two weeks, or however long um, the story session was where we were building it. Then you'd do your first draft, right? Then we'd all be flown out to the ranch again. Or he'd come to London, which he did once, 
um, and uh, um, and then we all sit down and we read. We've all read each other's drafts, and then all the writers would give their notes. This is when it was like you know. This is where you discover whether or not you like the process, um, because you get everybody's notes. But at the end of the day, it's George and Rick's notes um, that were the most important. And what do you think are the most fundamental elements of any good screenplay? And, and how did you try to adapt that method for young indie? Well, I think um, most writers, if they're honest, don't really start with a kind of manifesto in their head of how to write. Um, they, they'll, they'll adopt different manifestos as it goes along. They, they'll choose stuff that works. I approach each project slightly differently. When around the time I was hired to do Young Indie, everybody was talking about um, Hero's Journey and things like that, which certainly, you know, George was a great proponent. He, he'd kind of, you know, set the ball rolling with all of that. Um, my, my, my personal thing is that I'm interested in um, three-dimensional characters. And when I talk about a three-dimensional character... I mean, your first dimension um, is is very much what drives you consciously as a person. Um, it, I mean, this is how I interpret three dimensions. Um, what drives you, um, you know, I want to be rich. Um, uh, or I want, I want to fall in love. I, I want to find out what this is. You know, I want what what consciously is driving you in life. And then the second dimension is very much um, everything that characterizes, the characteristics that express that first dimension. So somebody who wants to be rich, like they'll mix with the right people, they'll go to the right school, they'll, they'll, um, you know, they'll, they'll socially climb. All of those characteristics, the way they look after themselves, everything, and their backstory. For me, that's the second dimension. Now, most writers stop there. They say that's character, your backstory, your, 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 um, what drives you. But the third dimension, which is, I think, the most important dimension and, and actually makes the story in most stories, is what are you doing wrong? What is your problem? What is your flaw? What do you really need to do as opposed to what you want to do? That's so interesting. And so that when we when the audience starts to get an inkling of that, normally somewhere around the beginning of the second act, um, they 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 go, oh God, yeah, if only. If only he could see that he needs to do this or she needs to do that. Um, and then the story becomes about whether or not they're going to learn that. And then normally by the end of the story, they do kind of learn it. But then they have to learn something else from their interaction with the other characters that gives you that surprise and that thrill in the third act. So, I mean, I can articulate this so much better than I could when I was working on Young Indie, because well, so many years have passed since then, and since then I taught screenwriting, you know, at, you know, lots of universities and things. So I, I've, I've, so I, and I 
and and I I've continued writing and I've continued making movies, but I've become very interested in teaching. And George, George um, was a tremendous support for me when I did, made that transition and I started teaching at University of Texas at Austin and things like that. And he wrote letters of encouragement so that I could I could get oh, those wow. jobs. Wow! So so it was so if you like the the um, the process of or how I thought um story how you know those those basic tenets of what makes a story great for me what makes a story great is what is the character arc how does the character change or not change if the character su succeeds in changing normally that's a happy ending if the you know if the character doesn't then there's then it's kind of a tragedy um and they're both perfectly valid um normally the happy ending is the more commercial but but um but the uh you know the sad endings are just as important and just as commercial um in their in their own way and i think george was very um aware of the hero's journey and he and and he would you know so the business of people learning stuff as they progress through their story which is very much part of the hero's journey um uh, he he uh he, the whole of Young Indiana Jones was sort of built on that. Um, it was built on Indy would really learn something. Yeah, it's super, a really great inspirational show. It's like Tintin. Yes, and Tintin is quite close in spirit to Young Indy. It is, um, it, it really because, is. Because Tintin was always, um, you know, getting involved in something. And, and as a child, those those um comic books those those well you know the graphic novels really um tintin goes to the moon tintin does this tintin does that and as you did it it woke you up to oh this is space travel oh this is this piece of history or this piece of that and then you go and look it up and that was the aim behind um you know young indie the aim behind young indie was that you know people would watch a show about you know cousin Zarkis and, and who no, nobody knows who that guy is but then after <laughs> after after watching the show maybe they'd go and um you know read the last temptation of christ or or um you know or find out about you know philosophy um you know and the, so it without being preachy it had very similar objectives i think to Tintin. It's one of the shows that I am most proud of having been involved with and certainly most proud of having worked with all those, you know, those great, great other writers and, and the directors. I have very fond memories of it. I, I love the way you're talking about three-dimensional characters. That's a really interesting way of thinking about it. Uh, you know, and as a writer, uh, do you ever put like a little bit of yourself into the characters? I think you have to, um, just that because I come from um, an acting background and because I still act um, and do stuff, um, inevitably when you act, you have to bring emotional memories of your own to characters' memories. You know, so you so you can actually be believable so that 
so that you can both hit the marks and look real at the same time. You know, you can say the lines and they sound like yours. So in order to do that as an actor, you have to um, adopt, uh, you have to bring a part of yourself to it so you can recognize that part. And even if you're playing an alien or if you're playing a lamppost or you're playing a dog, um, you know, whatever you're playing, you bring a bit of yourself to the table. And I think the same applies to writing. I, I think everybody has their own fingerprint. And a good way of, if you want to find out what your fingerprint is, there's a good, there's a good little game that I play with, um, with writers and filmmakers and something. I say, okay, before you ever thought you were going to be a filmmaker, before you ever thought you were going to be a writer or an actor or whatever, when you were a child... What were the very first two movies or TV shows that you remember loving? And you'll find that no one comes back with the same two. Everybody comes back with a different two. It's very, very rare that you find somebody who has the same two. Um, and then look at the questions that came out of those shows. Just think about those and Normally, it's the very first thing that your parents made you love or, or you wanted to love for your parents. And then the second one is something that's more about you. Or, or in my case, um, you know, Walt Disney's Jungle Book and then 2001. And, so, and that, so what's the similarity between those two things? They're both about um, very dysfunctional relationships um, uh, and uh, father figures and things like that. You see what I'm saying? So, yeah. in answer to your question, yes. That's a great answer. Yeah, that's a really great answer and a, and a very interesting philosophy to think about that. And and also, I, I mean, I would assume you use that as well, you know, when you're teaching as well, which is which is really fascinating. Oh, yeah. It's the first class. The first class, no matter what I'm teaching, is what's your fingerprint. And, and it's entertaining because it's a way of students getting to know each other because we'll run the trailer um, for whatever they've talked about. We'll run two trailers and people, and then we'll discuss that. Do you see what I mean? And normally in a trailer, a trailer is very clear about, you know, what's driving each thing. And and it can be very touching for people because they've, they suddenly go, ah, the connection between those two things. Of course, I didn't realize that. And then they realize, and then I say, well, there you go. There's your third dimension. <laughs> <laughs> But let's 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 start talking about some of these episodes uh, in order here. Uh, the first one you worked on was British East Africa, nineteen oh nine, which is now also known as the first part of Passion for Life. What do you think is important about like the theme of friendship in your filmmaking? How did you try to communicate that? You know, through the relationship between Indy and Meadow. I think what was important under that, and I think the thing that George was going for as well, and uh, is that as a child it's easier to make friends with people than it is when you're an adult. Um, and uh, so the the sort of wisdom um, of um, innocence, um, if you like, and I think that um, comes with, I think that's the best part of it, is the build of his relationship, um, you know, which was, you know, them basically trying to overcome their linguistic differences and and, um, and him learning about the uh, 
ecological, you know, consequences. Basically, learning some very modern lessons about ecology and and about you know, it got nominated for um, oh my gosh, the Environmental Media Award. Really, um, and uh, we lost to an LA Law episode, but um, but it was for me it was the George couldn't go to the award ceremony so i was sent with my with my wife to to uh, go to it and we sat at the paramount table and it's the first time i'd ever really been at an american award ceremony everybody sits around you know being very polite we were with the people from fraser and god knows what and then as soon as they they've realized that you're not going to win they're gone. And there's a terrible moment when you think, we might win. And it's being presented by, you know, Michael Keaton and all of that. And it was, I was so in the middle of all of that, I was, you know, it's like somehow the message gets lost. But 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 it doesn't really, because um, we haven't really learnt. We're about to destroy our planet. Nothing much has happened. <laughs> Um, since the 90s in terms of making things better uh, in terms of action you know and and i think that's really what um you know mankind kind of messes things up yeah there's a scene where roosevelt says that mankind has the power to destroy the wilderness and that must never be allowed to happen and i saw that today and i was just thinking about how it is being allowed to happen and it's continuing to happen and we're just seeing it get worse, uh, which is terrible. We haven't really learned the lesson. Exactly. His philosophy was more like, you know, we should make a park. Right. He didn't understand the big picture. He didn't really get the big picture. and In some ways, Indiana Jones' philosophy is, it just belongs in a museum, um, you know, isn't, isn't right on either. <laughs> yeah. I think you really successfully convey Indy's talent for language skills. So what about this language barrier did you feel was important to articulate to the audience? And, you know, did you ever work with a translator to learn these languages? No. Um, when you write something in another language, you normally write it in your language, and then you have a little parenthesis that comes under the or beside the character's name where it says um, in German or in thing of like that and then you write then you write it in english and then and then obviously uh, later on when when it's in production um the you will have a german actor you will have a translator they'll rewrite it into they'll say that they'll do they'll do it in german or whatever um and uh, and then it'll have the subtitles which will be the dialogue that you wrote and so that's really I'm not I didn't have to become a linguist but 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 obviously you do learn you you're just as I was talking about before you know it's that second dimension of the character you know what I mean what what's driving Meadow what's driving Indy you know why are they talking to each other um they need a friend they need to get away from the adults you know what I mean want to go and have some fun um and uh, the things that people say to each other are always because they want to communicate something um, and uh, or enthusiasm, which I think in in that particular case was um, the idea of two boys who are the same age and being able to share 
similar things, you know. They come from such different backgrounds, but they're both excited about seeing these this deer um, or this gazelle. Or this they're, they're both excited about that. And then, of course, you know, you have, you know, the characters come out like, you know, we see Indy being afraid of a snake. Yeah, and you know, one of the things I love about this show that I think is is very, very, uh, you know, interesting and a great example of the attention to detail that you and all of the other writers had is, you know, even though this was such an educational show, there's so many great moments where we have callbacks to the films or we see these characteristics develop. You know, for example, when he's afraid of snakes that first time before the events in Last Crusade, or a small scene that I think was actually cut from the DVD version, where uh, Indy's father meets his friend Medlicott, and they have the genius of the restoration college greeting, right? Yes. And so, you know, was paying tribute to some of those iconic characteristics from the films really important to you in this series? I think it was important to all of us. Um, I think if you suddenly get hired to write something where the previous movies had been like, you know, these big hits you sit down to write it and you think well what am i going to put on the stereo as i'm writing oh i know oh i should get this right um so so um or, or you're suddenly you're suddenly enjoying being within a franchise that you've always loved i had the same experience with with doctor who with Lassie, you know, with, with other kind of franchise things that I ended up doing. And, you know, another great aspect of this episode, too, is, you know, we, you talked about this a little bit earlier, is, you know, we learned so much about Roosevelt and his genuine interest in ecological preservation. And, you know, I like these, uh, you know, relationships and moments with these historical figures because I think it shows us as an audience that even someone as famous as Teddy Roosevelt is capable of learning his own lesson at the end. Yes. Right? So... How did you approach, you know, all of these sort of relationships with historical figures and then this fictitious character and adventurer like Indy himself? I'm not sure there was a specific method um, of approach. Um, I think, obviously, you, you, you try and work out by what your relationship is by doing um, as much research as you can. Um, I mean, the iron, a lot of it is the method, I suppose, is research is basically you. This is where Debbie Fine was wonderful, you know, and, and this is where we'd have lots of discussions, um, uh, you know, in, with with the other writers as well. You know, it's like um, Jonathan Hales, a very wise man. And so he could say, well, of course, you know, sort of, you know, Lawrence of T.E. Lawrence was was really into young boys. We shouldn't do this, maybe, George. You know, and it was a, and then and then and then and then it was like, no, let's just ignore that. Um, <laughs> and then, and then was, so there would be there would be all sorts of things where there's stuff in history um, that that maybe wasn't you know family viewing ABC um, because history you know the 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 reality is always more interesting. I. I think that, you know, one of the episodes that I adore, Carrie Fisher wrote, I think, um, was where Indy loses his virginity to uh, Matahari. Uh, and, and of course, Nick Rogue is directing that. And Nick Rogue is not the sort of director who, 
who would normally do a, uh, a you know an ABC family viewing show. So I do remember Nick Rogue coming to the um, ranch while we during one of the writing things and having dinner with us and with 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 George and George sort of sort of trying to get around the fact that the way Nick had shot the film was very sexual um, was not <laughs> they were having to work out all these ways of of uh, making it so that it could get through standards and practices so 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 a lot of that comes from you know like Nick Rogue's perspective of Mata Hari was was so it wasn't just the writers you know it was the directors um, and and the casting and and all you know every aspect of production goes to make a film it's you know writing is that's one of the joys of writing the film it's really you know you're a small part of a community it's not like writing a novel where you just got an editor um you know it's a it's a, it's a everybody's bringing stuff to the table and that's why of course a lot of films don't work because you know organizing um so many people and keeping the thing good um, is difficult. That's why directors are so important. Absolutely. And uh, let's move on to the next episode you wrote, which was uh, Princeton, 1916, uh, now known as, of course, the first part of Spring Break Adventure. And, you know, the idea of Indy solving a classic mystery kind of feels like, you know, this old Hardy Boys adventure, you know, which are fantastic books I, you know, I read growing up. And it's so fun to see in the context of Indiana Jones. So, you know, for this episode in particular, and especially with this whole show, Every genre of each episode is so different, and so does that make it more difficult or easy to have to be sort of changing between these different styles? Well, it's it was an interesting episode because, um, in some ways, it reflected on George himself. Um, you have two characters, Edward Stratemeyer, who was running a group of writers who were busy writing, you know, adventures, and and there's that wonderful moment where where um, where Indy talks about. You know, Tutankhamun and things like that, and then and then as he's leaving, Edward Stratemeyer goes open the door to the room full of writers. Boys, I've had a great idea. <laughs> I love that part. Yeah, yeah. And, and that was that. You know, of, so it was sort of ownership of ideas, the way in which you know capitalism will often you know promote one person, like um, Edison. Yeah, like Edison. You know, Edison similarly, I've had a great idea and he steals somebody's idea, you know. And so so it's um there's there's all, all all that that business of appropriation by means of um basically, you know, capitalism. I I own you, I own what you think. That for me was one of the most interesting aspects of Princeton. I mean, there was the sort of wholesome kind of um Joe Johnson caught it really well. He's good, really good director, um, and he caught it really well. That sort of wholesome kind of Americana. Um, um, you, what's the name of that great illustrator who's was almost a Nazi? I think. Um, God, those those wonderful photographic like. Oh, sorry, it's just gone from my mind. It will come. Please cut that out. Um, <laughs> it, it will come in a moment. Um, anyway, you know who does pictures of you know a cop at an ice cream stall with a kid on the hand? Do you know what I mean? And and it's just that sort of you know peak dogs chasing fire engines. Yeah. The idea was here is Indy before 
he goes off on any of his adventures. He's basically um, an innocent, and but he's still very, um, very, very kind of sort of in awe of of I think to a degree because of his experiences as a younger indie. Um, and he's 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 still very sort of there's a wisdom he has which attracts. Um, the you know the girlfriend in that in that story, but I do remember that the bookends were uh, with George Hall were tremendous fun. Um, yeah, uh, with the with the big wheel truck, <laughs> um, uh, the two of them, the two, the two of them, I, you know, and it was about cars and and uh, you know George is in love with cars and and uh, obviously if you look at graffiti and you look at star wars and you look at any of these things you can see his love of cars um and and so that was very much there also again another ecological thing which was that yes edison had developed an electric car and this was the truth and this was the thing where debbie fine um was so great you know it's like edison had developed the electric car we could have had electric cars right from the get-go yeah but uh, but the gas companies didn't make sure that that didn't happen that's part of the story so indy's thinking that the sabotage um is is all germans you know and and uh, submarines and things like that but it's not it's the gas company yeah and you know you talk about the you know like stratemeyer syndicate which was such a different way of writing back then you know with you know everybody else getting you know, doing all this hard work and then, you know, Edward Stratemeyer getting the credit and using fake names for all of his novels, you know. Yes. And uh, another part of this episode, too, which is interesting, is uh, Indy sort of at the beginning is very invested in this novel, Tom Swift and his electric runabout. Uh, why did you decide to include that dialogue from the novel and use it as sort of this voiceover? You even show the book, too, which is very interesting. The books had just come into the public domain, so I think we could do that. Um, and uh, and certainly that was a sort of Stratemeyer kind of book, and the um, and they come from that exact era. Um, and the early Tom Swift books were kind of like a young Indiana Jones of their era. They are, um, yeah. And um, um, and so and so and at that time, actually, I was being hired to write. Um, I got commissioned to write a feature film. Never got made, but it was a deal. You know, I got commissioned to write a Tom Swift movie. No way. Uh, and yes, wow. Yes way, as you would say in the 90s. <laughs> uh, but, but, but it was, uh, it was very, it was very, um, um, yeah, so Tom Swift was a kind of a big thing. And it also captured the idea of the sort of 50 cent novel, um, the, you know, because people didn't have TV to watch then, so they were reading those novels. They were paying fifty cents for them, and they were get they were as hooked into those as as people are hooked into Indiana Jones. And of course, the you know, the whole I think the whole approach George has is is a sort of a reverence for popular entertainment. That's where Star Wars comes from, you know, and that's where Indy Indiana Jones comes from. Um, they're they're basically taking the Saturday morning cinema, taking the serial adventure and turning it into something that we can watch now. Exactly. And it has such a different 
feel to it. You know, with Indiana Jones, he's working on homework, he's going to prom, but, you know, as a young boy in that time period, I think it successfully does that, right? I mean, he has this girlfriend named Nancy who, you know, we talked about Drew. it Stratemeyer. Yeah, I was just going to say that. It Was that a pure direct reference to Nancy Drew? That Yes, but it was in the story. I mean, when we, all the story, you know, it's, most of the story points were developed by all of us all the writers and George. So, so, so when you look at any one story, it's not. I can't really say it's completely mine. Right. Um. Uh, um. It's it's a combination of, uh, mostly George and 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 then you know and certainly, you know, all of those writers. Selbo, Rosemary Ann Sisson's amazing writer. She she passed away not that long ago, but she sort of, you know, she she'd written upstairs downstairs. She was like the sort of queen of etiquette over you know she when she came to america you know she they didn't put her on an airplane she came over on on the qe2 and gave lectures about her books and things and she'd arrive and sit there in the corner of the writer's room um you know like to sort of oh no they wouldn't say that to each other they'd say this um and and she'd get that she'd get that right and you know then hensley of course jonathan hensley went on to become a really great, you know, sort of action adventure writer, and he wrote things like Armageddon and you know all of those big movies, and and he's and he directs action movies, so he wrote most of the First World War stuff, you know, and and Darabont, you know, has this sort of very sort of intellectual approach, and so he so he his my favorite episode he wrote was with Schweitzer. Um, I love that episode. Yeah, I mean, it's great because we had this turning point that we had to sort of embrace in the film. I mean, we this is what I'm saying. It's just like there's a sort of communal ownership amongst all the writers of the stories. And and, uh, and then the fact that you were privileged enough to be asked to write something would be because George and Rick thought, well, Rank's going to be the person who's going to do the Schweit, you know, He's he's really smart. Matthew isn't smart enough to write that one. Um, and, and so we'll give him the one about the little children learning how to talk to each other. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so it's kind of like that. You know, what can you say? I, I guess yeah, it's kind of like uh, what you were saying about um, who gets ownership over it. But uh, the setup and payoff of this episode, I think it works really well because you sort of establish Dr. Thompson. He's more of an ally than a foe. He's like there at their dinner table and it really disguises his involvement in stealing the battery plans. Yes. Yeah. And however, I think there's some clear foreshadowing in this episode, you know, concerning the electric car and the oil companies and, you know, along with Dr. Thompson's complaining about Edison getting the credit for his inventions. So I guess how do you go about knowing how much foreshadowing to use without it being too obvious? So that's a really good question. And uh, 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 when I say it's a really good question, I, uh, what I mean is, is I don't know the answer. Really, it's, there's, I don't think there's a technique. I think when foreshadowing becomes too obvious, you know, like it becomes an exposition dump, as they say. So you'll have, you know, I don't know. Did you do you guys remember? Do you guys remember a movie called Wayne's World? <laughs> you sound like a Lindy right there. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So, so Wayne's World is is like you know like he'll stop and the bus the the 
limo driver will get out and say, every day I come here and I do this and I do that and I do that. And then, you know, they look at the camera. Why did he tell me all of that? We'll find out later. Um, <laughs> so so there's, you have to watch out for foreshadowing being like exposition dumps, you know, just getting a pile of information and the, and, uh, the, that the audience goes, oh yeah, I'd better remember that because we're going to be using it later. Um, so you want it to don't want it to feel like that. You want to feel like it comes um, that it comes naturally from the story. Um, somebody has to, the, you know, how you deal with exposition or foreshadowing or anything like that is it has to be done on a kind of need to know basis. Um, like we really need to know this to get on to the next point in the story. Um, uh, so, and and certainly when you're laying um, the groundwork for a mystery, um, you have to almost think backwards from the solution to the mystery, um, and you have to take stuff out so that the audience keeps asking questions. Um, uh, and you know this when you sit and you watch a TV show with your mother your brother or somebody's uncle or aunt and they keep on asking questions all the way through the show why is he doing that he knows, oh yeah yeah you know what was it and it gets really irritating you want to punch them after a while um and, <laughs> and then and then you and then you but you, it, as a writer you realize that those questions are your lifeblood right those questions that the audience is asking the screen normally in their head hopefully in their head so they don't disturb it for the other people who are watching um those questions are what what keeps them watching so you have to respect those questions and in the next scene you want to answer those questions right with questions with oh. new questions do you see what we're doing that's how you keep yeah. something moving forward um if you just answer the question and then it lies there like boom it's a Becomes it's like an episode ending. Do you know what I mean? And those are like episodic. That's and if you do it intentionally, like in a road movie, it's great. But if you do it unintentionally, then it starts to get a little bit wooden. Um, and so that was always the challenge with um, with young indie, where there were certain things that we needed to get across because this was also an educational thing. Um, and so we'd have these things that we'd have to come up with some clever way of landing them um, so that it didn't feel leaden or expositional. And that was always a challenge. And sometimes we got it right and sometimes it was a bit boring. You know, I mean, you had you to watch out for it. Well, let's move on to the next episode, which is Vienna, 1908, also known as the first half of Perils of Cupid. And I know we touched on this a little bit earlier uh, with the different um, philosophers and their ideas about love. So I guess, what did you want to establish about Indy and the theme of love in this episode, I guess, from his perspective? It really just had to be about love. I mean, Vienna in that era was, and I, I mean, I know this was really George's thing, you know, he, he, I think when he was starting the show, he had this episode kind of mapped out in his mind already. He knew that he knew that it would be, you know, start with Indy looking at Klimt's painting, The Kiss. And, and you know, this is a little boy who, um, you know, he's, he's what, he's 10 years old, however old he is. And, and, uh, and he's waking up 
to the idea of love. Now, of course, he's waking up to the idea of love in the town where Freud is being almost put in jail for saying that children, children can love and be as sexually driven as adults. Um, and then it's still a controversial thing for people to say. But Freud was saying it then. So it was a fascinating episode to do from that point of view. Um, and of course, the first person Indy asks about this is his um, Miss Seymour. And Miss Seymour sort of gets him into poetry. <laughs> and and so, so she teach, she shows him, you know, sort of, here's the, here are these beautiful expressions of that. And he gets a crush. He has a crush on Sophie. She's riding a horse. He's riding a horse. You know, it's a. There are horses there. Horses. I mean, it was. It was a. It was a minefield. But it was also a, a fun. It could have been one of the cheesiest episodes ever. Um, but, but because it had Billy August directing it, um, it didn't sort of become too sappy. Bits of it are sappy, but. But but it didn't become too sappy. Do you know what I mean? He still gave it a lovely edge, um, which I which I really, I really appreciate. I really appreciated that. I was so relieved because it's a it's a dangerous. You know, it's difficult to you know to have on American TV a little boy going, "What is love?" Um, and, <laughs> and then people go, "Love is." Do, 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 do. Um, and and so the challenge with that was the third act, which I took the third quarter, the educational part, where we had that wonderful dinner party scene, which I talked about before. Let's talk a little bit more about the poetry um, that Miss Seymour was having Indy read. How did was it you or maybe George Lucas uh, get inspired to include the poem "Love's Philosophy" in the episode? I think that was me. I, I can't be sure. I can't, I can't remember. Um, <laughs> to be honest, I can't. Um, obviously, um, Debbie would come with a bunch of poems. And then obviously, I think probably Jonathan, it might have been Jonathan Hales who suggested that poem. But, um, but uh, you know, at a certain point, you get overloaded by um, research. So, so I think I popped out and I bought one of those um, philosophy for dummies book, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and because I, I thought, well, what are the bare essentials that really people need to know, um, uh, especially when I was doing the philosophy one, but with but with psychiatry, um, and uh, it was a similar thing of I almost needed to s simplify um, uh, all the different approaches to the connection between romance sex and psychiatry and all of those things because this is a found you know these these are it's it's a deli it was a delicate episode and and I actually think George's basic conceit that that um Indy is prepared to risk his life um for love at a very very young age um is a um is wonderful it's just it's just great this was, this was one of my favorite episodes certainly yeah and i mean there are so many terrific moments in this episode right i mean 
first of all, this dynamic between Indy and Sophie, right? I mean, she's part of the Austrian royal family, and even Indy, who to us seems very wealthy, you know, to her is kind of this this foreigner, right? And then, right. you know, you talked about the dinner scene a little bit, which, you know, I, I'm curious to know if there's anything else that you sort of had in mind with this, because, you know, each of these historical figures, Sigmund Freud, Carl Jung, Adler, you understand each of their philosophies by the way they attempt to define love. And so, you know, what was your writing process like for, I think, arguably one of the more powerful monologues in this series? Um, I felt it was great. Basically, at that, at that time, to write a 15-minute scene, um, or 16-minute scene, I don't know how long it is, to write a 15-minute scene in a network TV show was just forbidden. You don't do it. They're, TV is shorter scenes. Now with streaming look you do get you do get it done a lot but um but then it was something that was not done so it was for me it was an opportunity to write a little stage play um it was an opportunity to sort of really bring the characters to the tables you know as i talked earlier about you know you want to find not only what drives the person but what they're doing wrong um you know what their you know what their problem is so bringing all these people and all their problems around the table suddenly became such fun to write. And I think my first draft was probably about 30 or 40 pages long, just of that scene. Oh, wow. Um, uh, and then we edited and edited and edited until we ended up with something that was more shootable. So it, that, was the core, that was the core of that episode. And I think... And I think it's nice because it's a dramatic core. It's a, it really is like theater, that, that, that scene. Absolutely. It's, it's fantastic. And now let's kind of move into the second part of your time on this series, which is interesting that you kind of shed some light on this earlier uh, with these TV movies, which were originally conceived as, of course, their own one-hour episodes. Uh, in you know, after 1993, the show got canceled by ABC, and so George Lucas comes back with these four additional movies. And let's start with Hollywood Follies, which is is quite an interesting episode because you essentially had to create a film about creating a film, right? I mean, you know, Indy works with director Jack Ford on this fictitious film, ironically enough, called Six Steps to Hell. And to me, this episode did a really good job depicting how a movie is made without making it feel like a documentary. And the first thing I'm curious to ask is, did you feel like this episode was very ambitious to put together? I think it was, I was, I was so happy to get that episode to write. I can't even tell you. It was like one of my, it was, I think it was one of the ones I said, I have to write this, um, the Jack, the Jack Ford one, because, because there's so much to learn from that filmmaker and also the contrast between Ford and, von Stroheim, the idea of putting those two stories next to each other, I think it's one of the more efficient, um, you know, co combination movies um, that were done because the story uh, really lends itself and it's to to a feature structure in as much as he's he has this romance, he falls in love with this that person who's the screen, this up and coming screenwriter, um, in the first episode, and George actually wrote the middle scene. There's a middle scene, that, really, that um, that that is where he has an argument to to stay with her in Santa Monica or wherever she is, and uh, they have this argument about you know, uh, well you can see it because he, there's even a line like 
I'm, I, you know, she says, I'm not some piece of merchandising. Only George would write that, I think. And I'm sitting there going, yeah, you know, I wouldn't write this scene, but he definitely <laughs> would write this scene. Um, and, and so so they have that argument there. And then, you know, she's hanging out with Tony and he and he's going to have to go on location and shoot with, with Jack Ford. And of course, the whole thing about, a film about filmmaking is, and I'm pretty much a kind of gestalt kind of filmmaker. I, I, I do, I, I know how to do most of the jobs on making a film. Maybe I don't, I don't know how to operate a camera. I mean, I could give it a go, but, 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 but I've certainly, you know, directed, written, acted, you know, done, done most of the jobs. So, and, and at that point, I think when we were writing that, um, I would I'd been hired to um, do um, Lassie uh, for for um, for Lorne Michaels, and I was um, and I and I was on the Paramount lot, which is where Lorne Michaels's company was based, and I had that experience of being kind of almost under the Hollywood sign in a bungalow at night with the joy of writing wow. a movie and so that was what i tried to sort of bring to the table if you like was this just the sheer joy that 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 um indie witnesses working with harry carey and 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 uh and john ford at jack ford as they try and fix this awful script um that they six steps to hell by al phony status and, <laughs> and um and they and and so so there's a lot of comedy involved i mean here's the thing is 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 um foolish wives survives obviously because it was this massive film but at the same time um, Jack Ford was churning out these two reelers, which he was sometimes doing as five reelers, and they most of them have been lost. They they just don't exist anymore. Yeah. Um, so, so in true Indiana Jones tradition, if they've been lost, why couldn't there be one where um, they did that stunt for the first time? Which, of course, later on, um, uh, George lifted that stunt from stagecoach. Um, I asked, can I can I go down because they were filming just outside of L.A. and it was around the time I think of the North it was at the Northridge earthquake. Um, there was a, a big earthquake, um, and uh, we just moved over there. And I wanted to take my children, my my two sons, um, to see it being filmed. Just a couple of days of it, and we went to see the sequ- There were two sequences. There's the sequence where Indy jumps, basically does the stagecoach stunt, um, and and another sequence later on where where they're deciding whether or not to do the stunt. Another sequence where he's having lunch after he's been humiliated as an actor, um, and then finally the little campfire scene um, where he the where the where the actors make fun of him, um, and uh, and you know tell him, you know to how to deal with the romance that's going on in his life and in a very John Ford kind of way. And it's a very, so they were very sweet scenes and the boys were little and it was, and, and it was just such a, it was such a nice atmosphere. I've got these lovely photos of the boys with, with, um, with Sean and oh. with, and with um, the, the cowboys who, who, who all 
came in and they really liked them. And my older son would do this thing of throwing stones because he was at that age, I think he was <laughs> seven or eight, just throwing stones. And Sean liked that. And he said, okay, I'm going to do that the next scene. So you see this scene where he's throwing a stone, which helps establish how steep the, oh, the right. hill is for the stone. So, so my, my oldest son was so proud because he got this, you know, he'd, he'd given, he had inadvertently given Sean this sort of acting idea. And then later on, at the end of the day, Sean, Sean really did do a lot of his own stunts. Yeah. In that sequence, that sort of stagecoach sequence, he's met right up alongside an out-of-control stagecoach, uh, not stagecoach, um, carriage or whatever it is, was being pulled by a set of four horses. And he's meant to jump from his horse onto one of the horses um, in th that's on the runaway carriage. Now... In any sane world, you wouldn't let your lead actor do that stunt. Right. <laughs> but but these were relatively low budget, and he was into it, and he did it himself. And and so as a result, uh, Michael Schultz was sort of saying, anybody who's got a camera or anybody who's got a video camera, we don't care. We want you to film this because we want this from <laughs> as many angles as possible. <laughs> this might be the last time that we see Sean. Um, so, so, so the boys were very proudly working my little video camera, um, taking shots of the wow. stunt um, from, from a distance. Obviously totally unusable, I think. I can't remember. Um, but 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 that's my memory of 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 having the most fun um, on on a young indie set. I didn't get to see a lot of them. Most you know you, you I think you've been talking to the directors. Um, they they the show went on for quite a time. Where it was people it became people's lives. Um, right. So so it was a big thing. But yeah, no, that's my memory. My bit of that show starts um, when um, they sit down um, with uh, with John Ford uh, uh, when the Mickey Finney has has failed, um, and uh, that was where my my episode started, um, and then from there on, it's like you know, you know, go for one, you know, studio executive one day, go for the next, you know. So there again, you know. A lot of the John Ford stuff is 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 there. There's um equally a sort of lovely commentary in that film. The difference between um, the sort of auteur artist kind of artistic kind of filmmaker like von Stroheim, who is totally so much smarter than anybody around there. Do you know what I mean? Completely outsmarts Indy, and Indy can't get him under control. There's no way, and he gets, um, and he gets fired. And you'll notice that the person, uh, after they go to the stage to shut him down, and they find, they find, oh my God, von Stroheim's gone. You know, there's only one person there who's sweeping the stage, and he's called George. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. Well, one of the interesting things about this episode too that. I like is, you know, I think you all had the chance and especially you being a writer to kind of, you know, put a little bit of yourself and also, you know, your role as a screenwriter into the film. Like Claire as a character, I'm sure was very relatable for you as well. And 
uh, you know, some of these other characters and Jack Ford coming back, Harry Carey, you know, they get this script, which is horrible. It was assigned to them. And so they create their own. So it accurately displays it in that way, I think. Yeah, she talks about how exciting it is to write and make films. She tries to educate Indy as to the as to why it's why it's such a wonderful world. Yeah, absolutely. Another interesting aspect of this episode too is the inclusion of Wyatt Earp and uh, you know this more very traditional sort of Western tropes and all of those elements. Uh, what exactly were you trying to do with that aspect of the episode as well? It's kind of interesting. It's, it's actually it's come into play recently. Is that my dad was in in um, a Doctor Who episode called The Gunfighters, where uh, where he played Doc Holliday, um, and and uh, the and Doctor Who ends up in, and that was in 1966. He'd done that, and and of course I was kind of fascinated by the fact that Universal Studios are really quite close to where the old cowboys used to hang out. And in fact, it's true um, that Wyatt Earp was around and Wyatt Earp did give advice, you know, on movies. Um, and so that, and and also it meant that I could have so much fun writing a scene, a barroom scene, <laughs> where Indiana, Indiana Jones, who do you want to see her? Yeah. <laughs> here for Wyatt Earp. Who should I say is here? Indiana Jones. Okay, and you don't often get the chance to write really good fun like that. And then you have the the shoot the gunfire scene where you know oh, yeah. he's saying, if you really want to you know kill somebody, you need a rifle. You if you use a handgun, it's not only good for the critters. You know you can't. Not, I love that not, scene. This is, and then you shoot them from behind. You know, well we can't do that. You know he's got to be a hero. And then we come up with the uh, well, maybe he could be a good bad guy, a good bad yeah. guy. What's a good bad guy? And, also, and of course, the foundation for that is the whole foundation of the the anti-hero. Um, you know, and so it's talking a lot about the nature of the way in which storytelling was. And you've got to imagine as well, you know, before the advent of TV and even cinema, you know, so before cinema. Um, America was an amazingly literary country. People forget this. People, you'd, they'd sign up. They People would get their novels. They'd read them. And most of the novels were westerns, you know, were adventures. Uh, and there are thousands of these great novels that were out there. It was a tradition. And people, people they read a lot more in the 1860s, 1870s. Uh, like that. If you look at the amount of copies of tom sawyer that you know mark twain sold and and, and it's and they were being read everywhere they would be they'd come by mail uh, you know people were reading lots in a chronological order this was the last episode in the series and i'm sure you had you know that in mind when you were creating the episode uh and it's also very classic you know having indie right off into the sunset um, but th since there were other episodes that were planned, did you feel like this was the best ending for the series? When I wrote that, I didn't intend it at all to be the end of this series. Um, the riding off into the sunset thing was is is just you know that's what he shot, and the idea was that was that you know Jack Ford will shoot the end first. He couldn't get von Stroheim to shoot the end of his movie. Um, <laughs> of course so, not of course not so you know com the completely different approach you know where, where in a Truffaut like way John Ford 
Um, for him, the art of directing is the art of coping with contingencies. Um, do you see what I'm saying? So, so, right. so whereas von Stroheim, it's like, it's like the auteur, my vision has to be, you know, they have to wear silk underwear so they can feel like they're noble. And, uh, and they all have to speak French. doesn't matter that it's a silent movie. Um, you know, both approaches are completely valid. And I think that's what the episode was about. We didn't know it was going to be the... I didn't know it was going to be the end of the show. I thought the show was going to go on and on and on. I'd written other shows. I'd written a, a lovely show um, called the Stockholm. Wow. 1909 was about um, a very popular book called The Wonderful Adventures of Niels, um, where Niels gets shrunk a little boy and goes off on the back of a bird and flies a children's book. And it won the Nobel... One of the Nobel... Was it the Nobel Peace Prize? Or it won some. It won some big award, and he's there for that. And then he has a dream. Indy has a dream, and we see him go on a fantastic animated adventure. There were other episodes that were wonderful, like Indy hanging out with um, Paul Robeson <laughs> as a, as a six year old or something like that. And uh, um, and then were, there were there were you know there were episodes that that we that that were written. Um, and and we could and we couldn't make them, um, but uh, because the show kind of didn't really, you know, it just it just ended up being used in a different way, which is a kind of a precursor to the way in which stuff is done now. You know, if you make something for the screen, it can be used in many different ways. Next, you wrote Attack of the Hawkmen, which is, you know, a phenomenal aviation film about Indy's involvement in the Lafayette Escadrille. And this episode in particular features some remarkable supporting characters. I love how Nungesser's farce and flamboyance, it really nicely contrasts Richthofen's more menacing demeanor. Um, are there specific characteristics you think are essential for great villains in a film? Most important thing when you're writing a villain is a villain doesn't regard himself as a villain. A villain regards himself... A villain has to view himself as his own hero. Um, otherwise, you have a moustache-twirling idiot. <laughs> <laughs> and that's fine if you're writing Dick Dastardly and Fantastic Races and it's a cartoon. Go for it. You know, why not? Um, really, the thing about um, those guys, they, they, the Red Baron and, you know... and. All, all of these guys they they thought they were they thought they were heroes they thought they were they, they, it was chivalric do you know what i mean it was like they yeah they 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 rode around on horses and there were knights you know uh, there were knights on their wall they they saw themselves as these glorious heroes and in some ways the most important thing were there was indy has come from um having been with schweitzer and learning that the only th anything that promotes life is good anything that destroys life is bad and he's learned that simple thing and he's thought to himself well screw this if i'm a soldier i'm going around killing people that's bad so i need to stop this war it's very simplistic and and so the only way i can stop this war is by becoming a spy um and his first job as being a spy, is to go to war, up against, up against you know the Red Baron, um, and and so so it's sort of bad luck. It's not as pure a spying thing as when he comes to deal with, um, you know Fokker in the second part of the in the second part of that show. I think it's 
I think it is my, my my memory of that show is a little mixed up, but I do remember my part of it, which was him um, joining the Lafayette Escadrille and, and, and seeing the courage of these people as one by one they get killed. Um, and he's and he's having to photograph this, and then he gets embroiled in a major dogfight, and of course, very difficult stuff to film. Ben, you know, Ben Burt did a fantastic job um, in Marin um, of pulling off those those um, those dogfights, and of course, it's the thing that 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 George adores is the old dogfights, you know the the old films of those old dogfights and it's there in Star Wars you know they he's he's he it's a thing and he would he take us into the office and say here I've got this film and he's cut it together and he was just he you know we would try out stuff on the ranch you know we'd try out stunts or things like that so that we could help the director and say here's the storyboard we're going to take this shot from this movie here this will be taken from you know old some some Paramount movie that didn't make much money and that has a train crashing into a village. We can't afford to shoot that. We'll just use that shot. And now we need all the other shots connected with it. And we'd run around with cameras on fire engines at the ranch and horses building up a storyboard, sometimes before the director was even hired. Wow. Um, you know, to to sort of make sure that this was doable. Um, because the budgets weren't very big. So the innovation that went on in terms of special effects, um, it, I mean, that's where it got a lot of awards, was because very early forms of CGI in terms of crowd replication and things like that were done um, on these young indie shows. And and the uh, and certainly the, uh, um, the Attack of the Hawkman um, episode um had a lot of very good special effects and uh i thought I, th- I was very impressed by what by the, how they brought it together yeah i feel like you guys really succeeded in creating that grand sense of scale uh with like the effects and the stunts and you know the cg we're talking about you know with more people in the shots uh and i think you know the tension and suspense for a lot of these action sequences is really superb obviously the odds of indie survival is talked about a lot at the start of the episode you know no photographer has lasted more than a week uh and we as the audience know indie's gonna survive because we've seen the movies um so how do you still write a compelling story when the outcome is i guess already predetermined for the audience i think that's the problem with the show in general um you know you know it's it's a problem with prequels right so so you know if uh, it means the stakes um have to become different so yes there you know his life is at stake um uh, but we know he's going to survive so what w- hopefully you make it so that what's at stake is a an emotional thing um uh, and i think in in that episode um it it was it you know it was it was that he realizes he has to risk his life in many ways, to honour the people who are losing their lives. Um, and so he learns a different form of courage. Um, you know, whereas when he's a sort of gung-ho soldier fighting 
in a, you know, fighting in Africa or whatever. It's come on, charge! We'll kill as many of these people as we possibly can. Yeah, boom, kill, kill. You know, something like that. Something like this. Whereas, whereas, um, in when he becomes a spy, um, it's it's not. I want to kill people. Um, and so, and and he realizes. So the bravery is different. Um, do you, does that make any sense? Yeah, it's really an evolution of his character through the series. Yes. So that that's what the stakes become. The stakes become, does he manage to make the next step in his development as, as a character? Um, and uh, so that's how we, we ended up really having to deal with the fact that uh, it's a prequel. And, and I think the same applies, you know, obviously... I know that his pre the Star Wars prequels were not very popular, but I actually kind of like them. I really do because I think I think the Star Wars prequels that he did um, are a, are a good follow on from Young Indiana Jones. There's a lot of the same people who worked on Young Indy, right? Worked on worked on you know Phantom Menace and and the others. Uh, yeah, Rick certainly Rick McCallum, a lot of the a lot of the technical teams. You know, John Hales ended up writing, I think, episode two, um, and um, so so they, you know, a lot of the same things that that. And as a result, when you look at those those prequels, they often they feel a little bit as though they're set in the early twentieth century. There's a lot about imperialism, you know. There's a lot about a lot of politics going on, right? Which is not the stuff of the space western that that was in the, you know episode four right now another thing that's interesting about this episode and one thing that i have often liked in films is you know the concept of diegetic music and there's two great scenes when everybody's singing these military tunes uh gary owen and the young aviator lay dying uh was that your idea to specifically include this music in the episode yes that that really was my idea. Um, uh, I was doing research. Um, well, when I say my idea, Debbie Fine had done the research, right? But then I also sort of read another book, and I came across that song. I think when I was doing the first draft, and I went, "Good grief, that's such a great song!" And everybody agreed. Here's the thing: when you do a montage, um, a montage is where you're making a story point. But the story isn't really moving forward. It's a love montage, you know. Okay, you know your your characters have fallen in love, so the kind of story stops because now they're having a nice time. So we're going to see them licking ice cream. You know what I mean? And there's going to be a song. So this was, this was a kind of a montage, a song montage. Um, so it was kind of, a, a, but it wasn't obviously a love montage. But but it was a very important montage because the thing about music is is you use music for a montage because you want to get to the core of some emotion, be it the expression of love, the expression of fear, the expression of of just sheer you know we're on a path here that where where the days are being knocked off and, and will Indy survive, so that's why I was looking for a song because I needed to get I needed to give that give that story beat. Um, some real life now one great moment to end you know attack of the hawkman is you know this iconic one-liner that is in this movie full throttle no breaks right which is what uh you know charles nunguser says when indy is you know frightened to go into the sky and then indy cleverly uses it at the end and so with this specific one-liner and also just in general uh what do you think makes a one-liner so memorable 
Oh my gosh. Um, I think um, it's the same thing that makes a title or a tagline memorable. It has to do two things. It has to sum up the action of what you're talking about, but it also has to it also has to sum up the theme, the argument that the show or TV is about. Um, I'm going to commit to something. Do you see what I'm saying? So, so, so. Yeah. If you think of any great title, it works on two levels. Well, let's move on to the final episode you wrote, which was "Travels with Father." Um, this episode is such a masterpiece because it creates a strong, sentimental story between Indy and his father, and it also provides so much depth. I think um, for Last Crusade, uh, was this episode one of the more compelling ones to write, and? How did that dynamic, you know, the mannerisms of Sean Connery um, in Last Crusade, how did that influence your writing for Indy's father in this episode? Obviously, I adored the Last Crusade and the relationship and the fact that, that that was there. And I think everybody has complex relations with their parents. So it wasn't hard to bring um, oneself to the table. Um, and... Uh, um, my part of travels with my father is the Greek part. I wrote the, and it was a separate one hour about the nature of philosophy. Um, and so I wrote that. Frank Darabont wrote the Tolstoy part. That was a separate episode about Tolstoy. Do you see? What, do you see what I'm saying? And then they, they only ended up coming together later on. Um, but when, but when we were doing the. Uh, the and I can't remember whether it was at the first story session or the rewrite session. Um, the most complex part of um, travels with my father, which is, which is after they've been up in the hanging monastery and he's met Kazantzakis and Kazantzakis has explained to him, you know, um, Aristotelian um, causality, the theories of causality, and. Uh, um, we then get to the fourth act. And you remember I told you how, like, in the fourth act, you have your Indiana Jones thing. So the third act is the learning act, i.e. him sitting down with Kazantzakis and Kazantzakis coming up with that beautiful poetic, which is all entirely from my head, actually. Um, wow. He, he never did any of that stuff. I mean, he was interested in philosophy, and he and he did study it, but there's nothing that that particular explanation of causality was something that I'd put together. And uh, um, and we, we after that, then, then it has to be an Indiana Jones story. So the only thing that I could come up with was, uh, well... They get stuck in that elevator in the in the lift, you know, going coming down from the monastery, and Dad it screws things up by by trying to start a fire and of course burning the cage and they're they're suspended over there and 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 the way I write um, action and the way that we were all, you know, I mean certainly I think the way the way George sort of does this. What is the worst thing that could happen next to your character? What, how can things really go wrong? Um, whatever that happens, whatever that is, that's the thing you should do. You shouldn't do some do some action thinking, oh, I know how he's going to get out of this. Well, we got to that situation, and then it was like, well, how do we apply the philosophy to this? And it was Frank Darabont and said, 
well, you know, maybe Indiana Jones's philosophy of life is turn your cage into a ladder. And, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that's very much in, and we all loved that. So, so, so it's like Frank Darabont, who doesn't get a credit. Well, we we do end up sharing kind of credit, I suppose, in a way. And I would contribute stuff to to the Tolstoy thing, you know. But 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 when you're when you're writing in a group of people, um, it's it's like if somebody's got a good idea that can be used, you use it. So, and apart from that, it was essentially a comedic idea, in as much as. And as much as his dad, the last thing he wants to do is look after this stupid boy. <laughs> um, he really hates the idea of doing it. So you have the perfect road movie set up where two people who don't really want to be together have to be together. And they just get, goes from bad to worse. So it was like writing a comedy. They get their clothes stolen from them they 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 um you know dad is doing his best to sort of demonstrate um, um philosophical ideas and theater and all those things obviously i brought a lot of stuff that my dad i mean i remember when we were doing the stories i would tell stories i told when we were doing the story i would tell i think that's why i got the episode really because my dad was bipolar and as a kid we'd go on these incredible adventures with him not knowing that he was bipolar. Do you see what I'm saying? Because we were just little kids. So suddenly we'd be off on these adventures. He'd say, I'm going to set up Robin Hood radio broadcasting and we're going to rebroadcast BBC radio from this hill in the middle of the night to this town. And, and, and we were just kids and we'd be, you know, helping him with a little medium wave transmitter. And I'd tell stories like that in the writing room as we were meeting and bit by bit. It start, I started to realize, I think we start to realize that I should write that episode um, because it, it's, it's a, it, it is a comedic premise. And then he, the father is trying his best to be a good dad and teach his son what he cares about, which is philosophy. Um, and he's trying to do that. But the comedy is constantly getting in the way. Um, and and then when he gets really irritated with Indy and says, OK, I want you to go off and explain the, f you know, the four principles of causality or whatever it is, and you really get the, um, uh, the existential um, philosophy um, that informed sort of Aristotelian thought. Um, and... It's a very deep, deep, deep little bit that he does, um, that Kazantzakis does when he talks about, you know, what makes the orange fall from the tree, the desire to make more oranges. Um, <laughs> what does, yeah. the, you know, why, why does this happen? And he's trying, he's trying to demonstrate it to a child. And Kazantzakis can do this. Indy's dad can't really do it because his dad is lost in academia, has long since forgotten how to really talk to children or how to communicate on that on that level maybe he can talk but then when their when their lives are put in danger at the end of the episode they do have to find a common ground you know indy sees that his dad really cares for him 
and I think that's you know that's the magic of that episode um, is is them you know reaching a, and and in some ways yes it's a pre it's a total precursor for for the uh, 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 Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade because a similar kind of thing happens there so so we we were definitely doing that and I think um, the bookends that um, Jonathan Hales wrote for the feature version yeah um, are are um, with um, with Sean um, coming back and actually confronting his father for the first time about what he wants to do with his life and I think that's the and I think that was a great way of bookending those two stories right because it sort of resets it and then Last Crusade is able to take over and bring things back into where they should be uh, but there's this terrific comic relief scene with Aristotle and Plato, you know, the carriage driver and the donkey, not the philosophers. And it stirs up a whole political discussion and it creates, I guess, it, to reference um, some of the old, other episodes, some incandescent rage for Henry Jones Sr. What was the purpose behind inventing this scene? I think it was a joke that that George had. I think it was George's idea to do, to do, the, to do a scene like that. I mean, I think it was in his head. Um, and, uh, um, and the part that I, um, the part that I enjoyed about that scene is the idea that only an idiot is not interested in politics. <laughs> um, and, and I thought this is, this is a building block for, for Indy. For Indy, because Indy gets involved in politics quite a lot. You know, he gets involved in, he gets involved in women's suffrage. He gets involved in the Russian Revolution. <laughs> he is Tintin. You name it, he's there. Um, and uh, um, I, I and so I felt I, you know, as a as a young boy, you are kind of in awe of your father. Um, and so the father can really mess with that in some ways. Your father is your hero, and um, and um, is there in this incredibly silly situation, um, uh, um, and uh, where you see the you see that philosophers don't always agree with each other, and I think that's that's really also what that film's about, you know, what that scene's about. It was not an easy episode to write because it's not like a war um, or Schweitzer keeping people alive or something like that. We're dealing with an academic thing, so so therefore the the show had to be sort of comedic, I think. And I think Deepa Mehta, who's an Indian um, director, she she uh, came out to Marin when uh, I was writing. When, I, when she was starting that and uh, she had a very she she was she was I think in some ways the most spiritual um, approach to any of the episodes she was really um, I had a dinner with her and we really talked about those scenes um, and she she was a, a really good director she really was and it's quite interesting because her direction is very different to whoever directed the the Tolstoy one, so as a feature film, I I don't think I've ever watched it through, um, because I I the, the they're very different. They're very they, I I'm not sure they should 
you know, I've, at the risk of saying it, I wouldn't put them together. Also, Darmont's writing is is um, a little um, is different. It's not driven in the same way as the uh, Greek one is. Right. And that's interesting that you talk about the writing process of philosophy and, you know, especially, you know, to us as viewers, most of us, you know, have have watched the DVD version. So it's very, very interesting to hear you talk how different these episodes are when they're not paired together. But I think what's so successful about this episode is, you know, the concept of philosophy and, and the metaphor with the phrase ergo that, you know, comes up all throughout. And, you know, as, as a final question for Travels with Father, you know, why did you think, you know, outside of the historical reasons and, you know, the location, of course, why was philosophy so important to sort of represent this profound relationship? Well, if you're traveling around the world, um, then then you, and you go to Greece. Greece is the home of philosophy, so so it became a very obvious place to go. And also, again, it's something that's not really taught um, in schools, and that was, you know, George's objective was really to be able to make a bunch of documentaries from that show. Um, that would go into um, the you know the different philosophical ideas. I think I mentioned this earlier. Maybe it shows Indy actually seeing why his dad is so great um, in some ways because his dad he it made seem to be incredibly stuffy this stuff, um, but when he scratches the surface and gets to talk to Cousin Circus and gets to an adventure or something like that, he realizes this is a philosophy he can take with him for the rest of his life. And the ergo thing, you know, is a case of, you know, how do we use our thought process to understand the world around us, to understand existence? Um, I mean, that's what marks us out as humans, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm sure that that the average squirrel regards itself as a philosophical being um, and is probably having the exact same conversation in squirrel language that we're having right now. But but um, as far as I know, um, they're not. <laughs> so, so, it's, so it's so you have to say this is the great thing about about human beings is they love to see patterns and stuff they love to see they love to they love to think that they know what's going on where do don't they yeah whereas <laughs> really at the end of the day we don't um and it's the so so you have to balance that 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 nihilistic approach of we don't really know what's going on we are destroying our planet it won't be very long <laughs> before we're all gone um and there, there's that nihilism with with isn't it glorious that we can even think that and know that and still make these mistakes and still at the same time make you know beautiful shows on tv and make beautiful paintings and build wonderful buildings compose fantastic music you know, all these things that we can do as humans. So beautiful. The last question here, as you reminisce about the young Indiana Jones Chronicles, now 30 years later, what did you take away from the experience and what impact has the show had on you as a filmmaker and as a person? Well, it stood, it stood me in really good stead in terms of um, coming to America and making American product, American films. Um, up until that point, I hadn't really worked on American projects. And obviously working with Lucas gave 
mere wonderful intro into the industry here. Um, and uh, I think it, it affected my life in a big way because um, because w we we moved out to Marin, which is where my wife wanted to live. You know, it's a big part of my life, and and obviously. It enabled me to work for other people and carry on working for George. I mean, I did did stuff like you know video. I did some couple of video games for him. Star oh, Wars wow. stuff, Star Wars really? stuff later. Yeah, and for a little while, I was quite good friends with George. But you know, as as I moved on to do other stuff, and he obviously moved on to do other stuff, we, we I, we've lost touch. Um, and. Uh, but at that time, you know, they he was concerned that the dialogue in the on the on the the cut scenes that you get at the various levels of the games wasn't very good. He didn't or he didn't like it. That he wanted somebody there who was going to write the dialogue that he liked that was right for the characters, and things like that. So basically, I got hired to write dialogue. I wasn't really designing the game. Darren Stinnett, another those other that and his team were designing those two games but i was just brought in to create the characters help create the characters and uh you know and write and write dialogue so i carried on working with him for a bit and then i was worked for a bit with francis um, coppola's company zoetrope i sold the science fiction idea it kick-started my american career basically well, Mr. Jacobs, it has been an absolute pleasure and privilege to have you join the Indiana Jones Universe podcast today. Thanks so much for sharing all these behind-the-scenes stories, and uh, I hope you enjoyed this interview. You know, thank you so much for inviting me. I had no idea it would be this much fun. This is a joyous thing. I'm, I, I just hope you're able to edit something out of it so that, so that it'll be a joy for people to listen to. Oh, absolutely. I think it's going to turn out very well. And with that said, uh, that about concludes today's episode, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. And if this was your first time joining the show, uh, make sure to subscribe to our podcast, uh, leave a review, tell other people what you think about the show. Uh, you can also visit our website at www.theindianajonesuniverse.com and join our conversation over on Twitter. You can find us there at The Indie Universe. But thanks for joining us, everybody, and we'll see you next time. Once again, I'm Elijah. And I'm Will. And I'm Matthew Jacobs. And until next time, so long, Dr. Jones. <laughs>